Hello, Attached to Hygiene listeners. Over the next few episodes, we'll be covering the overall topic of menstrual health, or as we refer to it in our industry, feminine care or feminine hygiene. In these episodes, we'll be introducing you to various people and organizations involved in feminine care and menstrual health who offer a diverse set of opinions and perspectives on the topic. Some of the opinions you will hear are not necessarily the same opinions shared by the brand owners or suppliers to the market, or for that matter, Bostic. In addition, some of the language you will hear is a bit more direct than what you might hear from your average industry producer or supplier at a trade show, on a webinar, or on their website. However, we think these perspectives are incredibly important to share, as we all look for opportunity to grow and improve our offerings in the very important menstrual health market. So with that, we'll dive into the episode. The four phases of the menstrual cycle. The first phase is menstruation, or the menses, and the first day of the cycle starts with the first day that one starts to bleed. And this can last anywhere from three to seven days. That's a normal range. Anything beyond eight days of bleeding is kind of an alarm that something is going on. And anything over 80 ml is considered heavy menstrual bleeding. So, you know, having a, an understanding of what normal is in the menstrual phase, I think is really important. And we haven't quite cracked that conversation yet because everyone's just looking to solve it rather than looking to see how often people are bleeding. Are they having pain accompanied by it? What is the measurement actually? And even the consistency too, and color. Those things are all very important. I'd like to start this episode by asking a few rhetorical questions. Have you ever heard the word menarche? Do you know what it means? What about the follicular phase or luteal phase? Do you know how long the average menstrual cycle lasts? Or the different needs of people throughout their cycle? All of this information is obviously important to know for anyone who menstruates. But it is also important for anyone who is designing and producing products for people who menstruate. Knowing the ins and outs of the menstrual cycle can help producers create products to support people throughout the entire cycle, not just during the menstruation phase. Luckily, Bostic is here to help. Welcome to Attached to Hygiene, the podcast that enables you to grow your knowledge and influence in the disposable hygiene industry. I'm your host, Jack Hughes, Global Digital Marketing Manager for Bostic's Disposable Hygiene Business Unit. On today's episode, we'll be covering the specifics of the menstrual cycle and menstrual health so that together we can not only design and produce better period products, but also better support the users of your products for the other 22 to 25 days of their menstrual cycle. Joining me today to discuss some mega trends from the world of menstrual health is Danielle Kaiser. Welcome to the show, Danielle. Hi, Jack. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. We're very happy to have you, and I'm very excited about our conversation today. So <laughs> so to start, I'm not sure how many people in the industry know who you are, so I would like to start by having you introduce yourself and your background. Sure, absolutely. So my name is Danielle Kaiser. I'm originally from California, but I've been living abroad in Germany for the last 12 years. And uh, my background is um, I studied politics and sociology. But my career has really been defined by working in nonprofit and, and public information campaigns and communications. 
And uh, I started my current social enterprise, Madami, the Menstrual Health Hub in 2016. But I've been working in the menstrual field for about 10 years, since 2013, when I helped launch and grow International Menstrual Hygiene Day, which is celebrated on the 28th of May. So yeah, maybe we can dive a little bit deeper into what that is. But uh, you can consider me a field catalyst, so to say, of the menstrual health sector worldwide. Great. And I actually didn't know that about the International Menstrual Health Day. <laughs> that was, uh, we are aware of the headed Bostic and, and we try to do some work around that, but I was not aware that you helped uh, launch that. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah. It was at the beginning of my career, actually. And it's called technically Menstrual Hygiene Day, but one of the things I was kind of pushing for was to change it to Menstrual Health Day so that it would be more welcome and broad in multiple countries since menstrual hygiene is you know very much a wash sector terminology and my previous employer didn't like that so much so <laughs> hence why I spun out and created the menstrual health hub instead of just focusing on hygiene which I think is a kind of friction that we can discuss later in the podcast absolutely I know I know we will <laughs> So you mentioned the Menstrual Health Hub and Madami. I, can you go ahead and introduce those? Sure. So I am one of the founders of Madami. We are solutionary experts and consultants in women-centered design, product development, communications and brand activism, as well as research and qualitative insights that are explicitly focused on gender, female, and menstrual health. In 2006, after leaving uh, Menstrual Hygiene Day, we established our nonprofit, which is called the Menstrual Health Hub, and this is the world's leading global knowledge and networking platform for anyone and everyone that's working around the topic. So to date, we have 900 organizations from 120 different countries represented and 1,700 resources that are free and available to use for anyone anywhere around menstrual health research, education and learning approaches, policies around the world that are addressing the topic, and innovations. And it's here within the Menstrual Health Hub, which is our kind of network and community platform, that we hold the heartbeat of the global menstrual movement in our hands. So anyone who's not signed up can do that at mhhub.org. It's free to sign up and you would get something called our menstrual memo, which is delivered every two weeks or so that shares the victories from the world of menstrual health. Yeah, and I saw your your newsletter on on LinkedIn. I, I saw you post that uh, towards the end of the year, and there was a ton of great information in there. And we'll talk about Menstrual Health Hub towards the end of the episode or the interview because I know you have some exciting and helpful information that is coming out this week. It'll be launched by the time we launch this episode, but I know yeah. you'll be excited to talk about that, and I'm I'm interested to learn a little more. So we'll save that for the end, but. Yeah. The one thing I always like to ask our guests, and I, I didn't warn you about this, is yeah. I always like to ask what they enjoy most about working in, normally I say the disposable hygiene industry, but you're very specific to menstrual health. So can I ask what do you enjoy most about working in the menstrual health field? Mm, there's so many things that I enjoy, but I would have to say probably the cadre of people that I get to work with. Since I've been in this space, I've really built like a community of different colleagues that have been working in menstrual health, menstrual hygiene, female health, and they are some of the smartest, most switched on strategic people 
who've got your back no matter what. I could not speak to someone for two or three years and then we connect and start a new project together. So it's quite a supportive community and it's just grown in size in the last few years. So I would say that the, we call them menstrual warriors, people that are really working at the bleeding edge of menstrual advocacy to try to get the field professionalized and just ensure a better future for people who menstruate. I, I know that through connecting with you on LinkedIn, my exposure and network of people working in the menstrual health field is is growing. And so, and I appreciate that because the perspective certainly help. And I'm in what we call the disposable hygiene industry. And that tends to be dominated by brands and their suppliers. So it is really nice to get the perspective of not only users, but also advocates in the field to to get it's a different perspective. It, it can certainly be a different perspective. And and it's for me, it's been very helpful to have that, as I said already, through some exposure through your own network. Something just to add on that is like, when we think about this field, we think about the people working in the nonprofit space and you know the corporations. It's really important that we pay attention to social enterprises and the rising tide of social enterprises, both within this field of menstrual health or femme care or period care, as well as others. They kind of get squeezed out and we don't know how to classify them because they're doing great work that is towards a, an advocacy purpose, but they don't quite make the amount of money that, you know, puts them into the category of a corporation and, you know, they're really mission driven businesses. And, you know, the more that I enter into the industry side of things and see, um, there's really no place for them and they're carving out their own place, but consumers really see their value because they're operating as lifestyle brands that are having unique relationships with consumers that corporations just have not been able to do. And I think it's important that we really recognize the bright stars in the social enterprise space as well. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And you can tell just by the, as you said, the influence that some of these enterprises are having on social media and the followings that they have, that they're a very important and growing facet of the, the space. You're correct. <laughs> so want to give you credit. We I saw your presentation, your slides from Hygienics uh, 2021 at the end of last year. I did not get to attend Hygienics live, but I saw your slides and, and they were actually recommended to me by someone in our organization. And Great. just without seeing you present, just reading your slides, I got a ton out of it. So I wanted to give you credit for that and kind of thank you for being willing to to talk about it and share your experience again. Yeah, I mean, I think hygienics was a really interesting experience for us as well. You know, I've been working in the menstrual health space for so long, but there's so many different corners and rooms of the menstrual space that really operate in silos. And so being able to share this knowledge with industry players, I think is really significant in trying to build the gap between public and private sector ambitions. Because at the end of the day, these lines are getting more and more blurred because of social enterprises. And, you know, we see that due to menstrual advocacy because of climate change, um, you know, a whole host of factors, the rise of feminism and other social justice type campaigns. There's a lot that's shifting within this space specifically. 
that's actually crafting it into a real market beyond just the traditional corporate femcare. And this can be a blessing or a curse, depending on who's looking at it. And so, you know, the last thing we want is for anyone to be blindsided by these changes, but like work with the ebbs and flows of these changes and yeah, get more involved with strategic partnerships and whatnot so that their aims are not seen as completely out of touch um, or old fashioned. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the many benefits of having an organization like yours being involved with Hygienic. You know, I think it's brands and, and the suppliers of brands are always trying to keep the end consumer in mind, but sometimes that is a lot easier said than done. And so Oftentimes with organizations like yours, you're much more in tune, you're, you're much closer to that, that group of, of end consumers and can really, you know, as you alluded to, really kind of represent them a lot better and, and share some of that, that knowledge and really expertise with brands who, while we might have pieces of it, it is easy to miss things for sure, you know, when you're, when you're focusing on producing products as well as trying to keep consumers in mind. Right. So one thing we mentioned from the beginning was was using the use of the word or the phrase menstrual health or cycle health in some cases, mm-hmm. as opposed to with what is common in disposable hygiene field, which is referring to it as menstrual hygiene. So mm-hmm. can you talk about some of the or the importance of, of using that that very specific terminology as opposed to the more common phrase in our industry? Yeah, absolutely. So this is all, you know, very new and has evolved just in the last five years due to increased advocacy and participation in the space. But essentially, menstrual hygiene management, or MHM, as it is colloquially called, um, is a wash sector terminology that was really referring to, from the get-go, creating toilets and uh, conditions where girls were also being accommodated in schools, particularly in developing countries. And so this term menstrual hygiene management is still kind of known, but there's been a backlash in the last few years because when we think about menstruation, yes, of course, there's a need to have like basic needs met around hygienic management. But if we're really thinking about uh, holistic uh, interventions, we need to be thinking about menstruation as the first phase of a monthly cycle called the menstrual cycle and menstrual health being the health of the person who's experiencing that menstruation and the other three phases of the cycle throughout the month and throughout their life cycle. So menarche, which is the first period, this happens around 11, 12, 13 years old for a young girl. And uh, every month she will menstruate every 28 Uh, days on average, it's actually 29.3 now, but 21 to 35 days is uh, absolutely in the normal range for a menstrual cycle. And throughout the course of this time, throughout the menstrual cycle, there's really, really, really interesting things that are going on in the female human body that most people don't know about, haven't been able to talk about because there hasn't been knowledge and information about it because of the insane social stigmatization of menstruation since time immemorial. And this is really quite tragic when you think about how fascinating the human body is and how much we're capable of, you know, as uh, reproductive beings, but also just 
as beings trying to chart and understand our own health. So menstrual health, the definition as such was only published in April of 2021, which is quite late in the game considering how long women have been menstruating. But this is really exciting in that finally there's a published academic definition of menstrual health to inform research, policy, industry and practice. Before that, if there's not something agreed upon a definition, people kind of just say whatever they want uninformed. And so this is really paving the way because it's it's enabling people to understand menstrual health is first of all like defined in a relation to the WHO definition of health, so not just the absence of disease or infirmity in relation to the menstrual cycle. And what this does is this opens up conversations to talking about the menstrual cycle beyond the hygienic management of the period, but also talking about like conditions, you know, dignity, irregularities, uh, inclusion. You know, there's so many places in the world where having a period is, is a sentence for being excluded, right? That they're not allowed to cook or they're not allowed to uh, participate in daily life. And I think that this definition of menstrual health kind of brings together all of those various strands, whether they're market-based, whether they're community-based, and kind of puts it all into one solid way of understanding the topic. And uh, I can share that with you and um, any listeners here so they can really wrap their heads around it because it's quite quite profound, I think. And we're already seeing just in the first nine months of it being out there, how much it's actually helping people on the ground to explain menstrual health from a non-technical uh, way and really cover socio-cultural, environmental, biological factors as well. And <laughs> I think one of the the important things in the industry, we've talked about it on on previous episodes of this, and it's it's talked about in conferences and and meetings and stuff like that with within the industry, within our industry, is is really breaking the stigma. And obviously, there are financial benefits to the industry if we can break that stigma, but there's obviously massive social benefits as well, which, you know, the, the UN talks about and, and it's, uh, there's a couple that are covered by the UN that, that fall into the category of, of menstrual health and improved menstrual, menstrual health. Yeah. But it's incredibly important, just as you said, for the, the dignity of roughly half the world's population that are going to experience menstruation at one point in their life or another. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what's really interesting to put into perspective is that when we talk about hygiene, you know, the antithesis to that is cleanliness, right? And so when we use menstrual hygiene to talk about a condition, it could inadvertently reinforce the fact that the vagina and the V-zone area is dirty and disgusting and that periods are gross and they, you know, this, this whole place needs to be sanitized and cleaned up. And I think if we, you know, language is power. And if we shift our perspectives a little bit, we can understand that, okay, like we, we have dental hygiene, we have hand hygiene. We do all these things so that we can have higher levels of health. You know, hygiene is an indicator of health. So instead of risking offending people, inadvertently reinforcing this taboo that we're really trying to break in 2022 and beyond, you know, take it up a level and talk about health, you know, talk about wellness. This is really what we're moving towards as I think like a, a social species is that it's, it's an ideal state and whether it's mental health, menstrual health, 
all of these things really contribute in little ways and pieces to an overall um, wellness and well-being. And that's yeah. what we need to be in, you know, incorporating it as. Yeah. And an, another common phrase within our industry is feminine care, feminine health, feminine hygiene. Can you talk about that a little bit and why maybe you, you chose to go with, with menstrual as opposed to feminine? Sure. Yeah. So I know that fem high or feminine hygiene is uh, a age old industry lingo, but it's problematic for a number of ways. So um, the hygiene I already kind of explained why it's also very limiting. You know, the, the hygiene aspect is limiting as well. If we're just focused on cleaning something up, then we're missing out on all these other areas for enhancing or just kind of making someone feel good. Right. It's not necessarily a problem to be solved, but you know, enhancing uh, particular states of, of being. So the, the problem with feminine that I think we need to all address is that there's a difference between sex and gender, right? Gender is kind of between your ears in terms of how you express yourself to the world, what you feel like in your head as you're moving through the world. And then sex is really between your legs, right? What the biological makeup of your of your parts are, your genitalia. And so Feminine hygiene kind of uh, reinforces the fact that it's only women who are menstruating, that feminine is the ideal state of being. If you're not masculine, then you're feminine. And I think regardless if women are super pro-feminist or super conservative or whatever their political disposition is, we're entering a world where women don't want to be feminized all the time. You know, they don't want to be told what to wear or what to buy or that this thing should be pink and pretty and, you know, kind of choose for themselves that they want to choose the, the black model of the car instead of the pink model of the car. And I think that we kind of need to listen to that. And I'm a big fan of calling a duck a duck. You know, if they're period products, it's called period products. If it's a menstrual product, call it a menstrual product. One of the, the terms that I think is the best is probably cycle care. Period care, if we're working specifically with the period products and then cycle care, because this opens up so many opportunities to address health concerns across the uh, menstrual cycle, um, whether that's in the follicular phase or in the ovulatory phase or into the luteal phase, where there could be excess cervical mucus, for example, or other kinds of uh, female health pains that are not yet addressed. So I would urge everyone who's listening, you know, if they're married to this industry, which there's a lot of people who've been working in this industry for, industry for a really long time, you know, a perspective change is helpful sometimes because it presents new opportunities. And cycle care is a really uh, great way of, of thinking about that. Yeah, for sure. Now, I want to dive a little bit into why menstrual health is so important. It, you know, there's some very obvious stuff, but I want to dive deeper into that. But before we do that, I did want to touch really quickly on, and this is new to me. I First time I, I really saw anything about it was in your presentation, and you just mentioned a couple of the phases. But can you discuss, maybe dive into a little detail on the, the phases of the menstrual cycle? Sure. I'm so glad you asked. One of my favorite things is to talk about the menstrual cycle with men because it's just so important. It's not about women's rights or, uh, you know, putting big political things on. It's really like understanding how, how cool the body is. So the four phases of the menstrual cycle, the first phase is menstruation or the menses. 
And uh, the first day of the cycle starts with the first day that one starts to bleed. And this can last anywhere from three to seven days. That's a normal range. Anything beyond eight days of bleeding is kind of an alarm that something is going on. And anything over 80 ml is considered heavy menstrual bleeding. So, you know, having a, an understanding of what normal is in the menstrual phase, I think is really important. And we haven't quite cracked that conversation yet because everyone's just looking to solve it rather than looking to see how often people are bleeding. Are they having pain accompanied by it? What is the measurement actually? And even the consistency too and color. Those things are all very important. So after uh, the, the menstrual phase comes the follicular phase. And this is where the body is starting to produce a lot of estrogen. And the estrogen is being produced from, let's say, well, actually from day one of the, the, the cycle up until ovulation. So this whole follicular phase uh, can be described as like your go, go, go kind of phase. And this is where a lot of women feel lighter and freer because they literally just shed the excess uh, endometrium that was sitting inside their body that didn't get used for a potential fetal home. And estrogen is also a hormone that men have a lot of, and it's very much defined by doing and having a lot uh, on your plate and really feeling energetic and uh, enthusiastic. So studies have shown that workouts are like a lot more effective because people are really just have a lot more energy during that time. And all of this is kind of orienting the, the menstruator towards ovulation. And, you know, I think we basically know what ovulation is. This is when people who menstruate are, are fertile at a particular time when the uh, egg actually drops and travels down the fallopian tubes and uh, attaches to the uterine wall hoping to find a sperm uh, somewhere along that journey um, so that there can be potential uh, implantation and impregnation and the cycle, the, the life cycle continues. During ovulation or right before ovulation, what's really interesting is the body temperature increases slightly. And there's something called the fertility awareness method, which is uh, quite interesting for people to get into because it allows them to become students of their own body and mm -hmm. really understand what their temperature is every single day, checking their cervical mucus, really taking good notes on their body and how it's interacting. After ovulation happens and there's potential, you know, meeting uh, in, in the uterus, something called the luteal phase starts. And this is really what defines the second half of the cycle. And as opposed to an estrogen go, go, go heavy first half of the cycle, progesterone is actually doing the exact opposite. So progesterone is known as like the mothering hormone, the sleepy hormone, the self-care hormone. And instead of like go, go, go and do, 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 it's kind of like, hmm, why don't you, you know, take a night in and <laughs> relax and recalibrate. And progesterone is really there to protect people in a way and uh, enable them to take good care. So I always like to say during this phase, you should take care of yourself like you are your baby uh, because that's what progesterone would continue to do if uh, a woman were to get pregnant. They produce progesterone, 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 and this is what actually creates that beautiful thing inside the body, the baby. <laughs> so um, during this phase, um, this is when, you know, for a lot of women, this increase in progesterone can be very uncomfortable for some of them. And there, 
if they're not producing enough progesterone, then they're producing a lot of estrogen. And estrogen, mind you, is being produced throughout the whole, the whole cycle, but it's supposed to be dominant in the first half. Now, due to lifestyle factors, stress, um, not eating well, not sleeping enough, more estrogen is actually can be produced because of cortisol. So when we have more estrogen that's being produced in that second half of our cycle, we're going to be experiencing things like cramps or dysphoria or uh, extreme bloating, real discomfort before the mm -hmm. period. And I will say that it's normal to experience, you know, levels of discomfort, but where it's actually like debilitating people and they're not able to continue with their daily lives, um, where they're having to medicate every single month. This is actually the body communicating that there's something wrong. There's some type of hormonal imbalance that's happening. And for, for years and time immemorial, doctors, everyone has been told, telling women, it's normal to have period pain. It's normal for you to be in throes of horrific pain during that time. It's not. Mm. And there's just starting to be research that's debunking that. And a lot more women are being diagnosed for endometriosis, polycystic ovarian syndrome, uterine fibroids are huge. And this is actually like medical conditions that yeah. Yeah. treatment and diagnosis, et cetera. So towards the end of the luteal cycle uh, or towards the luteal end of the luteal phase, the body eventually realizes, oh, oh, we didn't find the sperm, this sperm, uh, this nice home that we've been building for the last three weeks. Oh, looks like we're not going to be able to use it. So the body kind of self bulldozes in a way. And we see the hormone levels of progesterone and estrogen go down to their lowest point right before the period. So interesting to note is there's, you know, a few other hormones that are in play here, but testosterone, which is prevalent around ovulation, this is a testosterone that makes women horny for lack of better word, uh, for the purpose of procreation. Mm -hmm. But in the luteal phase, right before the period happens, there's another little spike of testosterone. And this is actually proven to be the only time in the cycle when women are naturally horny because there's not really a possibility for implantation at that point biologically. Mm. So it's really interesting to, uh, you know, for couples and people who are sexually aware to take advantage of this great opportunity because it's like actually the body saying, oh, whew, not not fertile right now, but you can go ahead and have a good time, you know, with protection and whatever uh, contraceptive methods or choices are available to people. But when you study the menstrual cycle like this and really take like a, a curiosity to it, it can be it can unlock so many doors just in terms of like your own knowledge. And wow, you know, as a 35 year old man, I had no idea about that. Or as a 65 year old man, I had no idea. I wish I had known that so I could be more available to my daughters. It really helps people kind of understand that this is natural, it's normal, and it's actually quite cool. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. And, and I think after we had some discussions before this interview, and after those discussions, things just seem very obvious I, but I just didn't know about them you know like yeah. my eyes were kind of open to stuff that I just I didn't know what the phases were I didn't know what was involved in each of the phases but when you have this this knowledge as as someone who can't ex experience it or isn't going to experience it it makes things a whole lot clearer and and kind of uh shed some light on 
on things that maybe that that just weren't as obvious before in relationships with with my wife or and this is where it helps the most i think honestly is just understanding like the difference between those two phases even if you were to break down into two phases like follicular versus luteal phase you know this is where it's like go 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 versus more withdrawn and spending more time alone you know i think a Mm -hmm. lot of a lot of women get called the b word or she's hormonal right before her period and um, you can't be the B word to someone if you're spending a lot of time alone, right? So mm-hmm. I think that there's a, a respect and boundaries that come with the education and understanding that really revolve around self-care and uh, wellness. Yeah, and I'm going to move ahead a little bit because I, I it's very uh, on topic with what we just discussed with the with the four phases. But there are obviously a lot of benefits that you alluded to outside of some of the just being aware of your cycle and and your body and if it's trying to tell you that something's not right obviously there are major health implications there but there are other benefits that that we've talked about a little bit that people who menstruate can can gain from just being aware of their cycle and i was wondering if you could touch on some of those cuz they're they're big they're big in in just kind of everyday health and living and family planning things like that so can you touch yeah. on some of those yeah absolutely so I think having like a solid understanding of menstrual health as a very young adolescent before the period comes, you know, maybe not going into such detail that I just did is really, really helpful for young, young girls. You know, this is a very scary time. Um, There's a lot of pressure on them. Their bodies are changing and growing and just kind of locking in that knowledge with them at an early age and having a parent, especially great if it's a male parent that doesn't just say, you know, talk to your mom about that stuff or, you know, go ask your mom. Really being there for them, I think, can do tremendous things that'll follow them their life, their lifelong path forward. And in turn, you know, being taught that the menstruation isn't dirty and it's actually like a sign of being, you know, becoming a woman and transitioning to an adult can really do huge things to their confidence, right? And if we lock in senses of confidence with young girls at a young age, like, wow, imagine what kind of woman they're going to be at 24, you know, if at 14, they learned all of this, and there was really this eradication of this stigma, and it wasn't reinforced by members of their family, or, you know, they became little advocates in and of themselves at school. That's not true. My mom told me that this and this happens, and I'm not going to believe you. Menstruation doesn't make us dirty. You know, it makes me strong and powerful so that I can be a great mom one day or whatever the case. I think also having awareness of cycle, the menstrual cycle, enables women to see their, there's a multitude of birth control options that are available to them. I think in this country and all around the world, particularly in Western countries, birth control is prescribed to young girls like as soon as they start menstruating for regulating their periods, which is not true because it doesn't regulate the period at all. It actually suppresses your hormones so that you don't ovulate and thus not have a real period. And it enables people to see that there are other options available besides hormonal birth control, which can be great options for people. But by and large, I think it's it's over-prescribed as an option rather than actually learning to see what might work best for them, whether that's no option, condoms used, you know, when used correctly, have a 99% effective rate as well. And then other forms of birth control, which uh, may not include hormones that can, you know, mess with the, the whole system. And I think that this 
this last piece around the contraception op- contraceptive options is really important because in this day and age, we're promoting more informed choice, you know, like finding what's the best contraceptive option for you and your partner. We need to be having that same conversation about menstrual product options where it's not just one thing, you know, because you're 12 years old, you start with this pad, you know, it's like, well, look at this whole plethora of things that are available to us now. Maybe you're not ready for a menstrual cup now, but I'd like to show you what it's like, or this is a menstrual disc, or these are period panties, or, you know, cotton uh, versus, uh, you know, commercial, you know, organic versus non-organic. I think that this kind of informed choice and being able to talk about the benefits and the risks of each enables people to make their own decisions, which at the core of it all is what gender equality is about, is that people are empowered to make their their own decisions and choose the lives that they want for themselves. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's enough stigma around menstruation. I think that compounding that with a lack of knowledge and, and education just it's a terrible combo. It really is. And I'm hoping we, we're going to actually have an episode, hopefully later this year, where we'll talk a little more about some of the shortcomings of, of education around around menstruation and, and address some of those issues. A little preview there, but yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that one. And I think the, the big eye-opening piece from, from our, our previous conversation was this birth control, this kind of natural birth control, and, and just being aware of your body will tell you when it's right to do certain things. And, and if, you, if you're aware of what your body's doing, you can make, as you said, informed decisions about when to be sexually active, when not to be sexually active based on what you're trying to do. I'm not like, when is a great, great time to use condoms if you don't want to get pregnant? And it is less uh, important, you know, like everything is important, but really it's what you do with that knowledge that I think is where people are really missing the mark. And I think as a society, we don't trust people to make their own decisions. And we have more education, like quality education, then maybe there will be more trust in people to make the decisions, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I know for me and my, you know, health classes in, in grade school and high school, I don't rem- maybe this was discussed, but I don't rem- I remember it. And for me, it always seemed obviously now I know it's it's not, but it always seemed like a crapshoot. It based on the way that unplanned pregnancy is talked about, it seems like it's unavoidable and it's not. It's <laughs> it's very it, it's very avoidable and, and you can plan for it with just a little knowledge of, of your cycle, like you said. And I think that's yeah. that was very eye-opening for me. Yeah, and I mean it's it's as simple of a question as like hey, what day are you on? You know, because that opens up a conversation. It's like, hmm, well, I'm on day six or I'm on day 26, you know? And if you if you understand what that actually means, like day six is like very follicular. Day 26 is very luteal. And as soon as you start attaching meaning to what those phases are, then it just helps with overall navigation. And that's eventually... I guess the, the big point that I want to bring across is that the menstrual cycle is a compass, right? And sometimes the compass is broken, but sometimes it's like can be tuned to the elements and, you know, you really know where you're going if, uh, if it's, if it's used correctly. Yeah. I think it's, a. Uh... Like you said, if you're if you're you're using it correctly, you're in tune with it. It's a great empowering tool. It's it's a, a great 
kind of self-awareness and, and health tool. And as you said, I mean, I think it's uh, something that was never taught to me is, should I ask someone what, what day they're on? And, you know, because it, it, there is this taboo around it and it's it was secretive and, and whatnot, but it's it's a great tool to make responsible, you know, healthy decisions, yeah. <laughs> informed decisions. To do, right? We all want to make more responsible, healthy decisions. And so, yeah, I would dare people to have those conversations and see what comes. I, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So like I said, we jumped ahead a little bit, but I thought that was a really important point. And I, I thought our audience would get a lot out of that. So I, I wanted to now kind of backtrack a little bit to the, the topic of menstrual health. And I, I think we've alluded to it a little bit with some of the things that you've mentioned, but an obvious question or a question with an obvious answer, why is menstrual health so important? It depends on who it's important for, right? So I think for this audience here, uh, menstrual health is important because it's catalyzing new markets and driving this trend of menstrual health awareness is a higher educated middle class with more disposable income to spend on better choices for their bodies. So once they've kind of realized that the medical establishment has been minimizing their pain or ignoring their health concerns, like they're seeking and getting information from online platforms in new and different ways. And this is like kind of creating this menstrual education army that's destigmatizing the topic and teaching them this kind of cycle literacy, right? And this is important because it's helping to diagnose and detect these menstrual discomforts in a meaningful way. And uh, this is important for overall health, right? It might prevent a, an early hysterectomy or um, instead of a, you know, waiting seven years for a diagnosis of endometriosis, it's two or three. Um, and then that person isn't suffering every single month for years on end. Yeah. So I think with, with regards to like to data, menstrual health is really important because it's enabling people to have more personalized access to their self-care. And like the data tracking is really helpful because it's going beyond the timing of the period to actually address like symptoms experienced on the days throughout the cycle and between periods, which is giving them more tools and information for them to go to their doctors with, you know? So usually the doctor's like, what's the first day of your last period? You can give that information in addition to, well, I also noticed these symptoms, you know, consistently my app is showing me that on um, the last four months I was experiencing pain around, you know, day 14 or 15, like what could this be? And so mm -hmm. I think like the more educated consumers there are, the more they're seeking like information from alternative sources and taking a more holistic approach to their health. And this in the end is increasing demand for more and better products. To meet their needs and you know this isn't just happening across the menstrual cycle but it's like across their whole lives both in their reproductive phase but when they're getting closer to uh, perimenopause or mm -hmm. menopause when the cycle stops completely yeah yeah absolutely and we talked about kind of the importance of organizations like yours helping consumers find that voice and be loud with that voice and as you said it helps it helps drive better products and and consumers are going to demand better products which is you know going to advance the industry and make the the menstrual cycle better you know more comfortable more more xyz for people who are menstruating which is is, is only a good thing yeah and like 
little tips that people have been learning, for example, is like around like caffeine intake, right? Like mm. when is it best to have caffeine versus not? You know, like I've learned that having less caffeine during my luteal phase is really helpful because uh, caffeine and progesterone kind of don't work well together, right? <laughs> so I try to drink a little bit less caffeine there because then that enables me to sleep deeper and longer. And then, you know, after my period, I, I am back on my coffee like normal. <laughs> it helps me in some ways know to like, we are driven by our hormones. You know, yes, yeah. we're personalities. Yes, we're families. Yes, we're incredible human beings on this planet. But we're actually like hormonal beings and <laughs> so much of what we do can actually be, is written in science. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty amazing sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you haven't done so, I highly encourage all of you to sign up for our Attached to Hygiene newsletter. Every two weeks, we'll notify you of the release of our latest episode. In our last newsletter, we shared our updated sustainability glossary, which covers all sorts of terms relevant to sustainability in disposable hygiene. And we'll be sharing more exclusive content on sustainability and menstrual health in the coming weeks. So if you want to stay up to date on everything we know about industry topics like sustainability, absorbent core, menstrual health, and others, check out the link in the show notes to sign up for our Attached to Hygiene newsletter. Also, if you'd like to read Matami's Glossary for the Global Menstrual Movement or any other materials from the Menstrual Health Hub, we'll have a link to those in the show notes as well. Attached to Hygiene is brought to you by Bostic and is hosted by me, Jack Hughes. It is produced and edited by me with the help of Paul Andrews, Michelle Tonkovitz, Emery Chernis, and Nikki Ackerman at Green Onion Creative. Our theme music is by Jonathan Boyle. We'd also like to extend a special thank you to our guest this week, Danielle Kaiser. You can find Danielle on LinkedIn or email her directly at danielle at mhhub.org. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.